There's one important thing that we need to notice about Genesis chapter 12, and that is that it comes after chapters 1 to 11. Well, you knew that, but, but, but had you noticed it? Abraham, later to be called Abraham, doesn't just appear out of thin air. He's born into the real world, the world in which you and I live, and he, like you and I, has a context, a backstory. This world, Genesis tells us in chapter 1 and 2, is a world created by God. And God didn't create the world to meet some need that he had. He wasn't in heaven on his own, feeling a bit lonely and fed up and wanting some company. He wasn't some kind of frustrated ruler that needed to make something so he could be boss over it. He wasn't a frustrated creator itching to use his talents and power and, and show them off. He wasn't a frustrated lover looking for something to love. For he was a father with a son living in perfect love through the Spirit. No, God didn't make the world because of any need that he had, but simply it was an overflow of his love and his delight and his joy. But even though we were an overflow of God's love and joy and delight, people nevertheless rebelled against God. And in Genesis 3 and following, that's the story. And three times God's judgment falls in these chapters. In His banishing uh, uh, humanity from the Garden of Eden, during the story of Noah and the destruction of the flood, and then in chapter 11, the separating of humanity, division through the different languages. And as well as these three judgments, there's also five curses in chapters 1 to 11. The serpent, the serpent is cursed and proclaimed to be the enemy of humanity. The ground itself was cur cursed, both of these in chapter 3. Cain was cursed and condemned to doubtful harvests and anxious wanderings. Canaan was contemned to servitude. And then again in chapter 11, God making the many languages which cause chaotic misunderstanding between peoples. Now, yes, in, in chapters 3 to 11 of Genesis, there has been some blessing, but primarily the story is dominated by human sin, by our failure towards God. And these chapters highlight God's opposition to sin, His determination to do something with about it. And they show time and again God judging humanity and finding us wanting. And it reaches its depth, chapter 11, in, in barrenness. Now, the family of Abraham had grown in the usual way, parent from parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, and so on. But the family line seemed to be coming to an end. At verse 30 of chapter 11, the verse before David began our reading, we're told that Abraham's wife Sarai was childless and she was not able to conceive. And so this broad picture from, um, from creation on had, had gradually been whittled down to this, this one family. And now, Abraham and his wife Sarah at the end of that line, and she can't conceive. There's, there's no future for them. There's nowhere for them to go. None of them are going to be able to do anything about this. 
But in chapter 12, God once more intervenes. He butts in. He butts in to make a difference, to transform things. He removes any doubt about his intention to restore humanity, to deliver people from the judgment they were under. For that's our situation. We were under judgment and unable to provide our rescue, but God comes. We'd become separated from him, unable to find our way back, but God comes. We chose to live for what wouldn't last, for what could not satisfy, but God comes. Now, creation, before God had spoken, back in verse 2 of chapter 1, creation was just in chaos and in darkness. And by the end of chapter 11, it's a similarly bleak position. Chapters 1 to 11 show the great creative mission of God being constantly thwarted and spoiled by human disobedience, spoiled in ways that affected not just people, but the whole of the cosmos. What's God going to do about that? Whatever he can do, it's going to have to be tackle a very big salvation agenda. The problems in Genesis 1 to 11 are desperately deep. And it's not a case of simply rescuing a few people, getting them on the ark, and then everything's fine. It's not a case of rescuing a few people and getting them transported to heaven. No, God has to do something with the curses that are on the earth. Death itself has to be destroyed. And the way opened again to the tree of life. The love and the power of God must address not only the sin of individuals, but also the strife and striving of nations. Not only the need of human beings, but the sufferings of animals and the curse on the ground. But just as in the chaos and darkness of creation, Genesis 1-2, we have at the beginning of verse 3 of chapter 1, and God said... So, in the first verse of chapter 12, facing this barrenness, we have the Lord said. The Word of God that spoke into the darkness in chapter 1 now speaks into the barrenness with good news of salvation, of transformation, of an astonishing reversal. And instead of the story tapering down to Abraham and Sarah and then just fizzling out altogether, the word of the Lord comes and promises blessing, not just for Abraham and Sarah, not just for one family, but for all the world, verse 3 of chapter 12. Now, the promise is, is given to Abraham, and it's given in five first-person statements. I will make you. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. I, 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 I. This is God's work. Just as much as creation itself was all done by God, so this is God. I will do it. I will. I will, says the Lord. As I said, people had run into a cul-de-sac. The story of humanity was just tapering away into this emptiness, this barrenness. But God was determined not to have that happen. 
And so just as he had spoken and changed the, the creation from chaos and darkness in Genesis 1, so again he has spoken, this time a word of promise, saying that he is still committed to his ultimate purpose of blessing humanity. He is committed to the purpose of sharing his love and delight. And the story of how that blessing for all the nations came to be is, is what we have in the rest of the Bible with Jesus as the central focus. The vision of people of every tribe and nation and language, language gathering together and worshiping the living God, which were given at, um, in Revelation, it's in chapter 7. This at the end of time echoes the promise given here in the first three verses of Genesis 12. Between Genesis 12 and the promise in verses 2 and 3, and the, the picture in Revelation of the all people gathering at the throne of the Lord, they bind the whole story together. And Revelation is the culmination of the reversal that has begun with this promise to Abraham. It's the starting point here of God's answer to the evil of human hearts, the strife of nations, and the groaning brokenness of His whole creation. In the book of Revelation, we look forward and see that all is to be healed and blessing abounds. Now, the well-being of Abraham's family, the fact that they're promised here that they're going to have descendants, the well-being of the family and the well-being of what will become the nation of Israel is itself to be a vehicle for the well-being of other nations. Israel wasn't going to be allowed to live in a vacuum. To receive God's blessing is always so that the blessing can be passed on and shared. And so Abraham's descendants must always live with, must always live for, must always live among others. The barren ones are now called to be the source of blessing of others, called to serve others, because that is who God is and what He is like, and it's what He's called His people to be. And this is reinforced in the subsequent chapters in Genesis as we follow through the story of Abraham. The call to be a blessing of others and to all nations is mentioned again in chapter 18, in chapter 22, in chapter 26, and in chapter 28, just driving home the nature of the call that is made here, that you're going to be made a great nation and blessed, but then that you're going to be a blessing to others and all peoples on earth, verse 3, will be blessed through you. It is the will of God that people should live in fullness of life, live in the joy and delight that He'd always intended. And writing years later, the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 3 sees this promise given to Abraham as the gospel in advance. It's the unveiling of who God is, of what He wants, of what His purposes are, and of how he reaches out to the barren, to the lost, to the unworthy, in order to bring his purposes into being. Now, of all the gospel writers in the New Testament, it is Luke in particular who connects this reaching out to the undeserving of the gospel, this blessing of the unworthy, with Abraham. He connects it with Abraham. So, in chapter 1, the 
song that Mary bursts into, the, what we call the Magnificat, when she has received word that she is carrying the Messiah. The song that she sings celebrates good news for the humble, the hungry. It celebrates the tables being turned and the self-made types being brought low. And this verse 55 of chapter 1 in Luke is a fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham. In chapter 13, a crippled woman is healed by Jesus, much to the annoyance of the religious leaders who didn't want it to happen because it was the Sabbath and you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, and they counted this as work. But having healed her, Jesus called her a daughter of Abraham. In the parable of the rich man in Lazarus in, in chapter 16 in Luke, Abraham is, receives not the rich man, but the poor man Lazarus. It's the lowly outsider who Abraham defends and sticks up for, and the rich man is excluded. In the story in Luke chapter 19 of the conversion of Zacchaeus, a tax collector who was despised by his peers, salvation comes to his house and he, verse 10 of 19 is, says Jesus, a son of Abraham, an heir of the promise. So, Luke is making it clear time and again that the ministry and the mission of Jesus is a building on, a taking further, a carrying out of the promise made to Abraham. Here is the loving heart of God reaching out to the world, being a blessing, not to those who are qualified or worthy, but to those who know that without the Lord, they have barrenness, not fruitfulness. Without the Lord, they are lost, not found. Without the Lord, they are guilty, but not set free. This is the good news of the gospel, that from the love of God Himself, He acts, He moves, he promises, and He keeps and fulfills His promises. And then from verse 4 in Genesis chapter 12, from verse 4 onwards, Abraham responds. He goes out on a limb for the Lord. Abraham didn't receive a map through his letterbox one morning showing him where he was to go. Abraham didn't receive a sat-nav with the destination clearly marked and the postcode provided. Abraham wasn't given title deeds to a patch of land in Canaan. He was called to go. Verse 1, go. And he was promised the sufficiency of God with him. And he went. The statements about God's blessing to Abraham, about honoring his name, about granting him land, about multiplying his descendants, all these statements of God's blessing in verses 2 and 3 are all dependent on God getting up and going. And it's that way round. It's not Abraham's idea. It's not his blue sky thinking. It's not his wish list. Rather, God has promised, God has commanded. And so it is, not just with Abraham here, but right through the Scriptures and right through the history of the church sins, that for all of God's people, 
Mission is not something that we think up, not something that we invent, not something that's done for our benefit, not something that's done in our interest, but rather it flows out of the loving heart of God who desires fullness of life and salvation for His people and who promises to send His followers into the world to show that love and joy and peace, to live that out and be a blessing to the world. The glorious gospel of God's Word to Abraham is that God's mission is ultimately to bless all nations, and the enduring challenge is that God plans and intends to do that through Abraham and through his descendants, which, as Paul reminds us in Galatians 3, is all who now believe in Jesus. You see, there is no blessing for ourselves, or no blessing for any of us, without faith and obedience in response to God's call. Now, living as we do in the west of Scotland, we are familiar with times when the weather's not all that great. But when we get a, as we did back in April and May, when we get a spell of, of sunny weather, we don't start thinking, oh no, the sun's going to run out. It's maybe not got enough left to be sunny again tomorrow. In a similar way, God's love is poured out in an inexhaustible stream. He loves the world now just as much as he did in Abraham's day. The Father constantly and continually radiates love to the Son and the Son to the Father through the Spirit. And God delights for that love to be shared. And that love will never be used up. It will never run out. It is even more constant than the Son. Now, it would be crazy to think when we had that um, days of sunny weather, it would be crazy to think, well, we better help the sun out in case it, you know, uses up all its light. I mean, it'd be daft for us to go and get a torch and, and shine the torch up at the sun, you know, thinking, we'll give the sun a bit more light here because it might not have enough to, to shine tomorrow. And it's equally daft. It's just as crazy as that to think and suppose that we could serve God in order to somehow benefit Him and show up His perfections. It's just as crazy as thinking that you're shining the torch into the sun to help the sun out. It's just as crazy as that to think that you're doing something for God in order to fulfill His needs. Not so. He doesn't need us. He doesn't depend on us. He has chosen to work through people. But it's His promises and His plans and His love that's the source of all of that. And so there's no point in you say, me saying, here you are, God. Here is me being good so that you can keep on loving the world, that you can keep on being a blessing to the world. God does not need my help in order to love more. He does not need any help to make him more determined to bless. He simply needs us to hear the call that he gives to be the agents, the vehicles, the instruments of his blessing. 
And the love for the world, the call to serve, comes from the loving heart of the Father. And it's never going to run out. And so we needn't try to hoard the, the blessing of God. There's plenty to go around. And so our calling is to be blessed, but also to be a blessing. So then, who might you bless today? To whom might you be a blessing tomorrow or during the week? To whom could you be a blessing in weeks and months ahead of now? Specifically and particularly, how can you take steps to bless and bless others beyond the familiar circle of family and friends? Notice that if this promise to Abraham was actually going to be fruitful, if it was going to come to be, then it was going to have to extend well beyond his familiar circle. Maybe that's part of the reason why he was going to have to, as a first step, go to Canaan, where he didn't know anybody. Specifically and particularly, we are called to reach out with the love and the blessing of God because that is who God is. That's how He loves. And to be His people is to learn to live in His love, to learn with His love, to share His love. And as and when we live like that, may we know the smile of God on our lives. Let us pray. Gracious God, your love for us is immense. Your love for us is unfailing. Your love for your world and your determination to share goodness never falters nor wavers. Lord, forgive us for any time that we think missions about us and what we do and what we can organize. It flows out of the love and the care and compassion and purposes of you, Heavenly Father. And forgive us too for times when we've not realized that the enjoyment of that blessing, the enjoyment of all that you long to give us is found as we go, as we serve, as we care, as we seek to bless others. So give us the kind of faith that Abraham had. Faith that takes you at your word. Faith that makes us willing to go, willing to serve, willing to give, willing to make ourselves vulnerable, willing to take risks. All for your glory. Amen. Will our respond to such a God whose promises given to Abraham were taken up further and fulfilled more in the, by Jesus himself? Jesus who came and spoke to us about how the kingdom of God is near. We sing of that as we sing here the call of the kingdom and the response that we have to go in response to the loving 
salvation of God given to us. I'm going to sing here the call of the kingdom. After we've sung the hymn, we'll confess our faith together in the words of the Apostles' Creed. And after the Creed, Jan Weir will lead us in our prayer for others. And then we'll conclude our service with the hymn, I'll Go in the Strength of the Lord. Mm -hmm.